0: Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 43 Space Stations Part 1. Yes, well, sir. Reading it loud and clear. clear. Clear, clear, The clock has started. The clock has started. 5544332111. Four, Despite the Soviet Union's failure to put cosmonauts on the moon, the USSR dominated space in the post-Apollo 1970s and into the early 1980s with a series of highly successful space stations. The plan was for long-duration spaceflight experience to be gained in preparation for a future trip to Mars. The world's first space station, Salyut-1, was launched on April 19, 1971, in between America's Apollo 14 and Apollo 15 missions. It was a simple, single pressurized module, 50 feet or nearly 16 meters long, and was equipped with two pairs of solar panels, which extended from the rear instrument compartment and from the forward of three workstations, respectively. It was built to dock with a Soyuz spacecraft. Back in Episode 61, we caught up with the Soviet space program and I briefly talked about its newest spaceship design, the Soyuz. The first Soyuz flight was in 1966, and though it had undergone some modifications and improvements over the years, the Soyuz is still what Russia uses today to ferry people into space. Despite a few early tragedies that cost cosmonaut lives, Soyuz is widely considered the world's safest, most cost-effective human spaceflight vehicle based on its unparalleled operational history. The current incarnation, Soyuz MS, has been in operation since 2016. Salyut's docking and transfer section led to the first workstation and large work compartment, 13 feet or 40 meters long and wide. At the rear was the propulsion system, which housed the maneuvering engine. The station carried telescopes, cameras, and sensors for astronomy, science, and Earth observation, as well as exercise equipment. Just after its launch, Soyuz's first assigned crew attempted to enter the space station, but when Soyuz 10 failed to achieve a hard dock, their mission had to be abandoned and the cosmonauts returned to Earth. The next crew was launched in Soyuz 11 in June 1971, and they were able to successfully dock and enter Salyut. The cosmonauts, Grigory Dobrovolsky, Viktor Patsayev, and Bodislav Volkov, became the first residents of a space station. Their announced mission was five-fold. First, checking the design, units, onboard systems and equipment of the orbital piloted station. Second, testing the station's manual and autonomous procedures for orientation and navigation, as well as the control systems for maneuvering the space complex and orbit. Third, studying Earth's surface geology, geography, meteorology, and snow and ice cover. Fourth, studying physical characteristics, processes, and phenomena in the atmosphere and outer space in various regions of the electromagnetic spectrum. And fifth, conducting biomedical studies to determine the feasibility of having cosmonauts in the space station perform various tasks and studying the influence of spaceflight on the human organism. On June 29th, after 23 days and 363 orbits of Earth, their mission was cut short due to a problem aboard the station, including an electrical fire. The crew transferred back into Soyuz 11 and re-entered Earth's atmosphere. The capsule parachuted to a soft landing in Kazakhstan, but when the recovery team opened the Soyuz 11 hatch, they found all three cosmonauts dead in their seats. An inquest found that a pressure relief valve had malfunctioned during re-entry, leading to a loss of cabin atmosphere. The crew was not wearing pressure suits, and it was decreed that all further Soyuz missions would require them. The Soyuz 11 crew are the only people to have died above the Kármán line. The spot about 62 miles or 100 kilometers above sea level, which was designated as the beginning of outer space in the 1960s. After the accident, Salyut 1 was remotely moved to a higher orbit to avoid orbital decay and in the hopes that another crew could be sent. In the meantime, Soyuz capsules were being substantially redesigned to allow pressure suits to be worn during launch docking maneuvers, and re-entry. The design took longer than expected, and by September, the station was running out of fuel. The decision was made to end the station's mission, and on October 11th, the main engines were fired for a de-orbit maneuver. After 175 days, the world's first space station burned up over the Pacific Ocean after housing a single crew for just three weeks. Salyut-2 was launched in 1972, and although details of this station have never been released, it appears that it resembled Salyut-1. The secrecy surrounding Salyut-2 seems to indicate that it was a military space station. Whatever it was intended to be used for, the Soviets never got the chance. It failed in orbit before a crew could be sent aboard. The also-still-shrouded-in-secret and likely-military Solute 3 was put into orbit in 1974 and was garrisoned by three two-person crews before it re-entered Earth's atmosphere in January 1975. In December 1974, just before Salute 3s mission ended, the civilian Solute 4 whose mission was nearly identical to Solute one was launched. The difference was that instead of two pairs of solar panels, this station had three pairs. Two long-duration crews called the station home between December 1974 and February 1977. For the last part of its mission, this station was joined in orbit by Salyut 5, another military mission which flew from June 1976 to August 1977. This is a little of what the Russians were up to, but just because the Apollo program was over didn't mean that Americans weren't still going into space. While the Soviets were launching solutes, NASA had its own space station in the works, one called Skylab. This station and its attached Apollo Command Service Module, left over from the canceled Apollo missions, included a workshop, a solar observatory, and several hundred life science and physical science experiments. On May 14th, 1973, between the Solute 2 and Solute 3 missions, NASA sent the unmanned Skylab 1 into orbit atop a leftover Saturn V rocket. And it's a good thing it was unmanned. A shield designed to protect the station's walls from meteoroid impacts and the direct heat of the sun deployed too early and was ripped away by the supersonic air, carrying one of the two main solar panels with it. A loose metal strip then snagged across the remaining panel, preventing it from unfolding all the way. By the time Skylab reached orbit, it was already nearly dead in space almost powerless and overheating badly. Skylab 2, with the crew for the space station, was supposed to launch the next day, but that launch was delayed while NASA engineers came up with a repair plan for the station. This three-astronaut crew, commanded by Apollo 12 commander Pete Conrad, making his fourth space flight, also included two space rookies science pilot Joe Kerwin, and pilot Paul Weitz. While each member of a Skylab crew was trained to conduct scientific experiments, the science pilot held overall responsibility for onboard research. Prior to joining NASA, Kerwin earned a medical degree and served as a Navy flight surgeon for seven years. There would be a total of four Skylab launches, Skylab 1, which put the station itself into orbit, and Skylabs 2, 3, and 4, which would all carry crews to the station. Miscommunication about the numbering system resulted in the mission insignias for the crewed flights reading Skylab 1, Skylab 2, and Skylab 3, respectively, even though they were really Skylabs 2, 3, and 4. The insignia for the Skylab 2 mission, which, again, was labeled as Skylab 1, the first actual crewed mission, was designed by Kelly Freyus, a well-known artist highly regarded in the science fiction community. The patch features Skylab above the Earth, with the sun in the background, eclipsed by the Earth. The upper left quadrant of the emblem reads Skylab 1, and the lower right quadrant lists the crew members. Skylab 2 took off 10 days late on May 23, 1973. The crew docked with and boarded the stricken and overheated space station, pushed a hurriedly designed reflective parasol through a hatch and opened it up to provide some protection from the sun. A complex spacewalk then released the snag solar panel, which provided the space station with much-needed power, finally bringing it fully online. With the station up and running, the crew was able to stay aboard for 28 days, setting a new record for the longest stay in space. They continued to make repairs throughout the mission, but also had time to carry out many experiments. These included observations and photography of the Earth and the Sun, and medical experiments in which the astronauts themselves were the guinea pigs. NASA was impressed with the crew's productivity. In fact, they finished their tasks much faster than expected and clamored for more. While the pace was impressive, it set some false expectations for how much a group of astronauts could accomplish, which, as we will see, would cause problems for the Skylab 4 crew. The arrival of space stations, which increased mission durations from days to weeks, forced mission planners to reconsider the menus they were providing to the astronauts. Although much of the food carried aboard Skylab was still freeze-dried, the pastes and cubes supplied on early space missions were supplemented with frozen food that could be cooked in the station's kitchen. Meals were prepared on metal trays that also acted as hot plates to warm the food, a magnetized metal surface held down metal bowls and cutlery. The Skylab 2 mission ended successfully on June twenty second, when the crew splashed down in the Pacific Ocean near San Diego and was recovered by the USS Ticonderoga, which, if memory serves, is the same aircraft carrier that also recovered Apollo 16 and 17. This was one of the final missions for the ship a veteran of World War II and Vietnam, before she was decommissioned and scrapped. Aside from the crew doubling the record for length of a single space mission, Pete Conrad set a record for most time in space by a single person over his career, with 49 days, 3 hours, and 38 minutes, including 7 hours and 45 minutes moonwalking and 5 hours spacewalking in Earth orbit. Pete Conrad, the man who had now spent more time in space than anyone else, was born into a well-to-do real estate and banking family in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on June 2, 1930, but the family's fortune was wiped out by the Great Depression. His father was adamant that his son be named after him, but his mother very much wanted to name her son Peter. In a compromise between two strong-willed people— The name on Conrad's birth certificate reads Charles Conrad Jr. with no middle name, but to his mother and virtually all who knew him, he was Peter. In 1942, the family lost their manor house home and moved into a small carriage house paid for by his mother's brother, Egerton. Eventually, Charles Sr., broken down by financial failures, left the family. Conrad was very intelligent but struggled in school because of dyslexia, a condition little understood at the time. Despite losing the family fortune, he was still able to attend the private Haverford school that many Conrads who came before him had also attended, again thanks to Uncle Egerton's support. He was expelled from the school after failing most of his 11th grade exams, but his mother found and enrolled him in the Darrow School in Lebanon, New York. He had to repeat the 11th grade, but while at Darrow, he learned how to apply a systems approach to learning and excelled academically. So much so that when he graduated, he was accepted to Princeton and was awarded a full Navy ROTC scholarship. Beginning when he was 15 years old, Conrad worked during the summer at Pauley Airfield in Pauley, Pennsylvania, and began bartering odd jobs here and there for occasional instructional flight time. He also began learning airplane mechanics. When he was 16, he drove almost 100 miles, 160 kilometers, to help a flight instructor who had been forced to make an emergency landing. Conrad repaired the plane single-handedly. The instructor repaid Conrad by helping him earn his pilot's license before he graduated high school. While at Princeton, Conrad earned an instrument flight rating and graduated with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering before becoming a naval aviator. After getting the flight hours he needed, he attended the Navy's test pilot school where he was classmates with future astronauts Wally Shearer and Jim Lovell. He was invited to try out for NASA's first astronaut class, a class Shira would join, and made it to the second round of candidacy. We talked about this round in episode 42, the round where the candidates flew out to New Mexico and underwent several days of what most candidates saw as invasive, demeaning, and unnecessary medical and psychological evaluations. Unlike his fellow candidates who put up with the BS so they could get into space, Conrad rebelled against the regime. During an ink blot test, he told the psychiatrist that one blot card revealed a sexual encounter complete with lurid details. When shown a blank card, he rotated the card, pushed it back, and replied, It's upside down. Then, when he was asked to deliver a stool sample to the on-site lab, he placed it in a gift box and tied a red ribbon around it. Eventually, he decided that he had had enough. After dropping a full enema bag on the desk of the clinic's commanding officer, he walked out. His initial application to NASA was denied with the notation, quote, "not suitable for long duration flight." When NASA began recruiting for its second group of astronauts, Al Shepard reached out to Conrad, who he had flown with both as a Navy aviator and as a test pilot, and persuaded him to reapply. The exams proved less evasive the second time around, and Conrad joined NASA in 1962 as part of the next nine. While at Princeton, Conrad met Jane Debose, a student at Brenoir, one of the prestigious Seven Sisters colleges. Jane's father, Wynn, was the first person to call Conrad Pete, rather than Peter, the name he had used since birth, and it stuck. Pete and Jane were married when he commissioned in the Navy, and the couple had four sons. Conrad retired from NASA and the Navy in 1973 as a captain. He was immediately hired as the vice president and COO of American Television and Communications Company where he went to work developing new systems for the nascent cable television industry, and in 1976, he joined the board at McDonnell Douglas, eventually rising to Senior Vice President of Marketing. On February 14, 1996, Conrad was part of the crew on a record-breaking around-the-world flight in a Learjet owned by cable TV pioneer Bill Daniels. The flight lasted 49 hours, 26 minutes, and 8 seconds. Today, the jet used in that flight is on permanent display at Denver International Airport's Terminal C. In early July 1999, Conrad and his second wife Nancy were traveling with some friends from Huntington Beach, California, back home to Monterey, when he crashed his motorcycle in a turn. He was wearing a helmet and operating within the speed limit, but died from internal injuries a few days later. The Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center in Houston has a grove of trees that has been planted to honor the memory of astronauts who have died. After Conrad's death, NASA planted a tree in his honor. During the dedication ceremony, his Apollo 12 crewmate Al Bean... Used his speech to lighten the somber occasion by injecting a little levity, pretending to channel Conrad's instructions from the hereafter. Bean said Conrad wanted NASA to light his tree every Christmas season with colored lights instead of the white lights used for everyone else, in keeping with Conrad's personal motto, when you can't be good, be colorful. NASA has honored this request. Every Christmas since then, all of the trees in the grove have been lit with white lights, except Conrad's tree, which is always lit with red lights. And Conrad was nothing if not colorful. You may recall his first words on the moon from episode 67. Standing just 5 feet 6 inches tall, the shortest person to walk on the moon, he said on a bet, Whoopee! Man, that may have been a small one for Neil, but that's a long one for me. Conrad has been inducted into several Aviation and Astronaut Halls of Fame, including the International Space Hall of Fame and the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame. He was a fellow of the American Astronautical Society and the New York Academy of Sciences. Charles P. Conrad, Jr., was buried with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery in Section 11, Grave 113-3, with many Apollo-era astronauts in attendance. The front of his non-standard headstone reads, Captain, United States Navy, an original. Skylab was vacant for just over a month when Skylab 3 brought the second crew aboard on July 28, 1973. Because of the diligent work of the previous crew fixing up the damaged space station, Commander Al Bean, Science Pilot Owen Garrett, and Pilot Jack Luzma had more time to focus on experiments and observations of both the Earth and the Sun. Skylab 3's mission insignia featured Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man as its focal point, representing the mission's medical experiments. The background is a disk that is half sun and half earth, with the crew's name arcing across the top and Skylab 2 at the 6 o'clock position. The wives of the crew secretly had an alternate graphic made with a universal woman and their first names in place of the crews. Stickers with this image on it were put in lockers aboard the command module to surprise their husbands. Skylab 3 more than doubled the length of the Skylab 2 mission. The crew spent 60 days in space before splashing down on September 28th off of Baja, California, and being recovered by the amphibious assault ship USS New Orleans. The final Skylab crew arrived aboard Skylab 4 on November 16th. For Commander Jerry Carr, Science Pilot Ed Gibson, and Pilot Bill Pogue, this mission would be their one and only spaceflight. When the all-rookie crew boarded Skylab, they found they had company. No, this is not the beginning of a space horror movie. The Skylab 3 crew had mocked up three dummies in flight suits, complete with Skylab 4 mission patches and name tags to greet their replacements. Things got off to a bad start for Skylab 4 when the crew tried to hide that Bill Pogue had an early bout of space sickness from flight surgeons back in Houston. This fact was only discovered when Mission Control downloaded the day's audio logs. Chief of the Astronaut Office Alan Shepard reprimanded the crew for the omission. The crew also had problems adjusting to the same workload level as their predecessors while getting everything set up in the workshop. Their initial task of unloading and stowing the thousands of items needed for their lengthy mission proved to be overwhelming. The schedule for the activation sequence dictated lengthy work periods for a large variety of tasks to be performed, and the crew soon found themselves tired and behind schedule. As time went on, the astronauts complained of being pushed too hard, and ground controllers complained the astronauts were not getting enough work done. At one point, they were trying so hard to catch up that the astronauts missed a radio check-in with mission control, which the media blew out of proportion. Unfounded reports circulated about everything, from the crew staging a temporary work stoppage to voice their concern, to a full-blown mutiny in space. None of it was true, but the crew's unhappiness did prompt a discussion between the astronauts in ground control, where the two sides brought their concerns to the table. NASA determined major contributing factors to the troubles were a large number of tasks added shortly before the launch, with little or no training, and searches for equipment out of place on the station. This back and forth led to the workload schedule being modified, and by the end of the mission, the crew had completed even more work than originally planned. Carr later said he regretted waiting several weeks before airing his concerns. We swallowed a lot of problems for a lot of days because we were reluctant to admit publicly that we were not getting things done right, he said in a NASA account of Skylab. That's ridiculous, but that's human nature. Despite the reconciliation, as I mentioned earlier, no one from this crew flew in space again. And now, dear listener, I have to share with you one flight detail that I warn you, you may find shocking. I know I did. Skylab 4 pilot Bill Pogue wore the first automatic chronograph watch in space, and it wasn't an Omega. So, an automatic chronograph means that instead of needing to manually wind the mechanical watch, it has an internal mechanism inside of it that winds the watch every time the wearer moves their wrist. Hogue wore a Seiko. Yes, you heard me right. He wore a Seiko when two years earlier, Omega had come out with an automatic chronograph. Now, sure, this Omega was a Seamaster and not a Speedmaster, but still, a Seiko? And I mean, I by no means want to disparage Omega Seamasters. I have a Seamaster Aquaterra, it's what I wear, because I can't afford a Speedmaster. Hopefully, this does not tarnish the reputation of the astronaut corps in your mind, and don't say I didn't try to prepare you for that shock. <sighs> Okay, I'm going to try to put that behind me, so moving on. Skylab 4 crushed all previous space longevity records, staying on the space station for 84 days, before splashing down on February 8th, 1974, off the coast of San Diego, where the USS New Orleans was waiting for them. Now this seems like a good place as any to pause the story for now. Next week, we'll wrap up Skylab and move on to the first joint U.S.-Soviet space partnership, the Apollo-Soyuz test project. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a 5-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.